0: Hey there, we're going to make a pitch for you to support our work by supporting your local public radio station with a donation. But it seems like listeners like you already know why you should support us.
1: Hey, it's Tim in San Jose. A whole lot of politics
0: happened today. Here at the Politics Somewhere Podcast, good, we bring you the biggest distorted. political stories.
1: This fine podcast was recorded. But there's a lot of work that goes into making the podcast before it's in your feeds.
0: It takes a while to engineer it. Things may have changed by the time you hear it. And to do that work, from reporting to producing and editing, we depend on support from listeners like you.
1: And the best way to support our show is by giving to our member stations.
0: Without them, this podcast just wouldn't exist.
1: So if you like this podcast, maybe even enough to write a song about it, please consider giving at donate.npr.org politics.
0: OK, that's it. Hit it, Tim. NPR politics, go go go. Okay, get ready. Here's the show.
1: Hi, my name is Jared, and I'm graduating today from Appalachian State University with a degree in public administration master's level. This podcast was recorded at
0: 1.14 p.m. on Friday, December 13th.
1: Things may have changed by the time you hear this. Okay,
2: here's the show. Congratulations.
3: Congratulations.
0: Hey there. It is the NPR Politics Podcast. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover the presidential campaign. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Kelsey Snell. I cover Congress. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, senior political editor and correspondent. Well, you might recall that yesterday we ended the podcast by saying that we expected a vote on impeachment from the House Judiciary Committee at some point last night. Uh, But it turns out that we were wrong.
3: So, Kelsey, what happened? (laughs) We were wrong, and we were surprised that we were wrong. Um, We were waiting at the very end of the night. It had been a very long night. We were 13 hours, more than 13 hours, into debate when they seemed like they were wrapping up and they, everybody had given their speeches and committee chairman Jerry Nadler started to make a speech about how solemn an occasion this was and how much everybody needed to think about their votes. And then he said, It has been a long two days of consideration of these articles and it is now very late at night. I want the members on both sides of the aisle to think about what has happened over these last two days and to search their consciences before we cast our final votes. Therefore, the committee will now stand in recess until tomorrow morning at 10 a.m., at which point I will move to divide the question so that each of us may have the opportunity to cast up or down votes on each of the articles of impeachment until at history be our judge. The committee is in recess. (laughs) The gasps across the room were audible to every single TV camera. Uh, The members on the Republican side were completely shocked and started yelling about it. Um, Doug Collins, the ranking member on the committee, basically was incensed. That was the most Bush league play I have seen in my life because they want to simply get it back on the cameras because it's after 11 o'clock tonight and they don't think enough people is watching.
4: Though hilariously, he was doing that in front of TV cameras.
3: (laughs) You know, a lot of the Democrats I talked to about this said they could not vote on articles of impeachment doing something as historic and as contentious as that at basically midnight. That was not Mm. something that they felt like they could do without being criticized for trying to sneak through articles of impeachment in the dark of the night.
0: This morning, we saw that it was a remarkably short hearing.
3: It was incredibly different. The entire tone and mood of the hearing this morning, they were in and out in 10 minutes. Judiciary Committee will come to order a quorum being present. They just showed up and voted and left.
5: Mr. Chairman, there are 23 ayes and 17 no's.
3: Your article is agreed to.
1: Yeah, so these articles, obviously they passed by party line vote. Democrats control the committee and now it's going to go to the full house where, you know, everyone expects that President Trump will be impeached. And the thing that has come out over the last couple of days of debate is the president himself saying that this is nothing but really impeachment light. This is the lightest impeachment in the history of our country by far. It's not even like an impeachment. So the thing is, I went back and looked at the Nixon articles of impeachment and the Clinton articles of impeachment to see, is this really that light? I think on the one hand, you know, Democrats gave Republicans a really big stick to sort of whack them with because they had litigated bribery for some time, for a month or more, Mm -hmm. and then didn't even include it, right? But if you were to look at this in a big picture, right, Bill Clinton lied to a grand jury to cover up sex. Nixon, he may have committed a host of crimes, misused government to help him win an election uh, and spy on domestic political rivals. What Democrats will say about Trump and why what he did was such a big deal was that it goes to the heart of democracy, saying that he used foreign interference to corrupt an election. And that's really what it all comes down to, whether it's watered down or not compared to what it could have been.
4: Well, and I think what. Republicans and President Trump would say is like, well, there's only two articles of impeachment here. And Clinton had four and Nixon had what, six or eight or the sheer number. Nixon had three.
1: There were three articles of impeachment against Nixon. There were four articles against Clinton and only two of them actually passed the House. So it doesn't matter what the number is. It matters what the substance is.
3: It also matters that it gets passed. I mean, Democrats are acutely aware of the fact that there were four for Clinton and that they didn't all pass. That is something that was a part of the discussion. When they were writing these articles, they had a very serious talk about what could pass and how to actually write these to make sure that all of the Democrats or nearly all of the Democrats could get behind it.
0: So in the midst of this entire impeachment process, Tim, you had an interview yesterday with one of President Trump's top advisors, his daughter Ivanka, which I found really interesting because we don't actually hear that frequently from Ivanka. But what did she have to say about impeachment? Well,
4: and we should say that this was for a story
0: about paid parental leave, which is one of the issues
4: that she really cares about and has been pushing on. But of course, I asked her about impeachment. I asked her if it was weighing on her father, the president, whether it was affecting the White House. And in terms of people in the Trump White House, Ivanka Trump is incredibly disciplined. And so talking to Ivanka Trump gives us an idea of what the sort of perfect White House talking point would be, like mm. what they would like their talking point to be. And and her message was, we're getting all kinds of stuff done, and the Democrats are just doing impeachment.
5: This whole process is a continuation of what he has been experienced since he arrived in Washington, D.C., the swamp kicking back, so to speak. So he continues to punch through, deliver for the American people, and... Secure wins.
4: Yeah. And that is the funny thing about what's happening right now. First off, their message is we're doing all these things. We're getting all these things done. Part of what they've been able to get done is bipartisan. Pretty much everything they've gotten done is because of this sudden flurry of bipartisan agreement on a defense bill uh, that includes paid parental leave, which is this issue that, that Ivanka Trump cares about a lot, and that Democrats really care about. There's
3: something that Nancy Pelosi said. They gave the president Space Force because they wanted this so bad. And the thing that Democrats also argue and have said about why they wanted to work with the White House on this specifically is they think that having the federal government set this standard will pressure more private employers to follow suit. They think that it's bigger than just the federal government.
0: But when you talk about accomplishments, it's not just this paid parental leave. I mean, it was trade USMCA earlier this week. I mean, there
3: but are other spending issues. Bill.
0: <laughs> yeah.
4: If impeachment weren't happening this week, we would all have whiplash from all of these bipartisan agreements that are breaking out in Congress. Now, this is a time of year that Kelsey knows better than I do, is highly productive because they are running headstrong into the holiday break and they want to be able to get the time off. And then the next year is there's going to be a lot of campaigning. So this is when stuff would get done. But oh, my God, so much stuff is getting done. Yeah. And I think part of that is
3: that Democrats want to be able to tell their voters that they got things done with the president. A lot of these, particularly freshmen from moderate districts or freshmen Democrats who represent districts that were once held by Republicans, were elected on the promise that they were going to work across the aisle. And they really haven't done a whole heck of a lot of that because there hasn't been a whole heck of a lot of anything done in Congress lately. And if they're going to impeach the president, they had better be able to defend that promise as well. So they are making up for lost time this- this week.
4: The other thing about what Ivanka Trump said as she was saying this, President Trump was in the midst of the most remarkable record setting string of tweets and retweets, both commenting on the Judiciary Committee as it was going on and retweeting members of Congress who support him It was more than 110 tweets. I stopped doing my spreadsheet at some point. What time frame?
0: What was the time frame you were looking at? 110 tweets in?
4: Uh, From like, you know, midnight until 3 p.m. when I last did my spreadsheet. And then he kept going all night. That
3: must have been, um, did you mute your phone? No, but my phone, I was like, why is my battery dying?
4: Trump tweets. (laughs) Just all the
3: push notifications. Notifications.
0: notifications.
4: (laughs) But so while the White House wants to say we are focused on getting things done, at the same time the president is clearly very focused on impeachment.
0: All right. Well, Kelsey, I know you've got more reporting to do, so we'll let you go. Thanks. Off to uh, ask lots of questions
3: about what's in this spending deal.
0: Ooh. And yes, there is more going on in the world of politics than impeachment, including a presidential primary. More on that after the break.
2: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Uber. Uber is committed to safety and to continuously raising the bar to help make safer journeys for everyone. For starters, all drivers are background checked before their first ride and screened on an ongoing basis. And now Uber has introduced a brand new safety feature called Ride Check, which can detect if a trip goes unusually off course and check in to provide support. To learn more about Uber's commitment to safety, visit uber.com safety. Support also comes from U-Studio. Think about all the ways your company could use a podcast. Share confidential training with remote employees. Product updates with sales reps or customers. Weekly messages from your CEO. The possibilities are endless. Join companies like Salesforce, Nike, and Dell that trust U-Studio to manage, host, and distribute their secure, private podcasts. Learn more about U-Studio at theletterustudio.com. You've probably heard of the Freedom Rides when activists took buses from the north to the south to demonstrate against segregation on public transit. But what about the reverse Freedom Rides? It was one of the most inhuman things that I have ever seen. Get the full story on NPR's Code Switch podcast.
0: And we're back, and we're joined now by our expert policy reporter Danielle Kurtzleben. Hey, Danielle. Hello. So, Danielle, you did a lot of stellar reporting this week, and the first thing I want to talk about is Elizabeth Warren's campaign because you took a look at how health care has been affecting her so far. What'd you find? Right. So, I mean, listen, when you're looking at polls, it's
5: impossible to know 100 percent. Here is the one reason why someone's poll numbers have dipped. But you and I, everybody in this room knows that Elizabeth Warren's poll numbers have trailed off. At one point, she and Biden were neck and neck for leading in national polls for among Democratic primary voters. Now she has trailed off. She uh, there's sort of a four person top tier with Biden seeming to lead. And she has fallen off in those early states as well. But why? So one thing is that her poll numbers started dipping off before she released that Medicare for all revenue plan, the big pay for plan that everybody was asking for, that everybody was sort of pummeling her for on the campaign. So that started it. The the trail off sort of started around the time of that. I believe it was the October debate where Pete Buttigieg started saying to her,
4: all right, your signature is have a plan for everything. Mm -hmm. Where's your plan for this? They went to the thing that had been her selling point. -hmm. And said, oh, well, maybe that's a weakness.
5: Yes. Well, this exactly. And this kind of gets at the second thing that I got to, which is a guy named Chris Jennings, who was a healthcare advisor in the Obama and Clinton White Houses. I asked him, okay, what do you think of all this? And he was like, look, it's not that voters looked at her plans and were really digging into the nitty gritty and going, you know, I just don't think that tax is going to be big enough. It's nothing like that. (laughs) No, it's what it is is that Warren, the way he put it more or less, I'm paraphrasing, is that Warren had set up this thing for herself where she was the woman with a plan. And that she not only could answer any question you threw at her, but she kind of welcomed it. Like she welcomed you trying to poke holes in it. And she like she was a little bit ready to punch back. But on this, suddenly she was on the defensive. In in short, it kind of ruined Or at least it poked a hole in the story that voters had of her in her in their heads as this untouchable policy person where suddenly she couldn't immediately answer questions. on.
1: She's in something of a difficult position politically because she has to sort of walk this line between progressives who might be more inclined to the policies of Bernie Sanders, who's really been the one who pushed all of this and Mm -hmm. pushed the party to the left in the way that he had given the 2016 election. So there's a deep well of support and affinity for Bernie Sanders because of the leading role that he's played on policy. So if Elizabeth Warren was going to peel off any of the people who, you know, had that affinity for Sanders, she had to go as far as Sanders was. But then in order to maintain the support or get the support of maybe some of those more pragmatic Democrats, she couldn't look like she couldn't win. So mm-hmm. that's a very difficult thing to balance. Right. And clearly it put her off yeah. off balance. And I a think what bit. we're
0: beginning to see is she was getting squeezed on both sides. And there are Mm -hmm. certainly people I've met, you know, during the course of this campaign, even at her events, who will sometimes say, I don't know about Medicare for all. I mean, they like her, the candidate, they will say. But I think what we're beginning to see exactly to your point, Domenico, I was out in Nevada this week, and I met a woman at a Bernie Sanders rally who candidly told me that she was an Elizabeth Warren supporter until just maybe three weeks ago. Uh, Her name is Allie Brooks, and she lives in Las Vegas. And she said essentially that she was pivoting now more towards Bernie Sanders because she felt that Elizabeth Warren was too wishy-washy on health care, which I think is really interesting because it sounds like you were saying what she needed to do was peel away some of Sanders supporters. But maybe the transition plan and all the details makes folks actually more confused about what she stands for.
1: I mean, that makes sense, especially if you had so many people as soon as her plan came out. uh, And just before that, by the way, you had a lot of Democrats who are worried about winning in the suburbs criticize her and criticize her plan. You didn't see that before she called Caught up to Joe Biden in national polls. Once she did, and P- and it looked like she might become the nominee. Suddenly, you kind of had that establishment strike back.
4: Can I ask you guys about another thing that has been a big story for the last couple of weeks that involves Pete Buttigieg and mm. Elizabeth Warren and sort of this back and forth, this fight of radical transparency about purity the, tests? I call it. Yeah, <laughs> like their their previous work. Um, What is up with that? I mean, they have consumed so much oxygen with this back and forth.
0: I mean, so there's clearly the politics of why they are doing this and <laughs> in terms of them seeing one another as a threat. But I mean, you know, you have Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg, to your point, both sort of arguing over who can be the most transparent person. For Elizabeth Warren, it comes down to past legal work that she's done in the corporate law world. For Pete Buttigieg, it came down to consulting work he did for McKinsey when he was essentially a, a freshish, relatively newish college grad.
5: Right. And I mean, a couple things to add there is that, listen, one, Warren and Buttigieg, we're seeing this huge fight between them. It's not just on their McKinsey work and their corporate work. That is a part of it. And I'll come back to that. But it's also on policy. We're seeing them just slam each other at every opportunity. Part of it, I think, and I, I know Asma and I have talked about this, is that in terms of voters, they're kind of fishing from the same pond. The two of them are both very popular, in particular among white educated voters. Like when you look at the poll breakdowns, that is who they are very strong with.
1: And their uh, campaigns know that. I mean, yes, their campaigns absolutely. clearly are tracking that. They see the Venn diagram. They know who they need to get to be able to gain that last piece of support so that they can win in places like Iowa and New Hampshire. But totally. I think some but some
0: of it comes down to, like, uh, just an actual irksomeness that they see with one another and how they're Oh, you think it's personal? I think some of what we're beginning to see is, like, they find one another's tactics annoying, right? Like, I mean, we see that Warren and Buttigieg are individually... We see Warren going after Buttigieg. We don't actually... See see her campaign routinely criticizing him in a way that you know we don't see them going after say Bernie Sanders or even Joe Biden that often. Here's the thing though like this is a thing that I'm curious about is that at
5: Warren events you will find and this is not just some randos this is a
4: fair number of people who will tell you yeah I'm considering Pete Buttigieg Mm -hmm. as well it's all fine They're, they're both great. But so like all of this back and forth is happening meanwhile Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden are still basically front runners in yep. this race. And they're like pretty quietly <laughs> just, just hanging chilling. out. Right.
1: Well, and think about why. I mean, this is such a fractured field that there that there are a degree to which they have coalitions that are pretty locked in. Joe Biden has older voters and African-American mm-hmm. voters so far. That's a significant chunk of the party, but about a quarter. OK, you look at uh, someone like Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders has a significant chunk of especially younger, more progressive, Aggressive voters, even voters of color, but voters mm-hmm. of color who are younger, right? And who want to move in a direction that they feel the Democratic Party has, uh, you know, been too moderate on. So those blocks aren't really budging terribly. And then you're left with Warren and Buttigieg fighting it out to try to peel off some of those others to gain at least a plurality of support.
5: But I, and to get back to exactly what Tam started asking this with, to sort of bring <laughs> us back full circle, is that, you know, talking about Buttigieg's work with McKinsey and Warren's corporate law legal work. There is, of course, a big anti-corporate strain in the Democratic Party right now, a very anti-corporate vein of thinking that, I mean, you can definitely make a case that Bernie Sanders did a great job of really raising that in prominence. So, of course, Buttigieg and Warren are both trying to establish and burnish their bona fides on that, of course. But aside from that, jumping off from what Domenico said... Biden and Sanders are very well known to voters, whereas Warren and Buttigieg were relatively newer to most voters this year. I mean, I'm sure you had some who knew who they were. So I think that this is a thing that they both probably felt like, yeah, we need to get out ahead of this. We need to be transparent. Otherwise, we can be cast as having secretive corporate ties because, listen. You can make a case against Biden on corporate grounds. I mean, absolutely. Biden on uh, uh, like the card bankruptcy industry, law. Yes, absolutely. But he has people who love him. And that's kind of baked in, I think.
1: And I will just say, you know, stepping back from all of this, this is where Democratic strategists get a little itchy about what it's going to mean for a general election, because the more... You, as a party, vilify Mm -hmm. corporations, the people who— Which many people
0: work at in this country. I mean,
1: (laughs) this is the point, right? (laughs) We have an economy that is very strong right now. Sure, there are some warning signs. Sure, there are some people who say there could be a recession potentially at some point soon. But— the corporations are where people have jobs. And if you're going to continuously say that the corporations are terrible and bad and they're not good, and yet the economy is doing well, that can have potential ramifications with people in the middle.
5: Counterpoint, counterpoint (laughs) to that. You're absolutely right. And the economy is great. The question in this election, unless a recession happens before the election happens and we have a big, you know, spike in the unemployment rate. I think a needle that Democrats are going to try to thread is quality of jobs, not quantity of jobs. For example, you may have a job, but also the labor share of income, the amount of income in the U.S. that goes to workers has declined significantly. You might see your employer doing well. You might not feel like you're doing well on your paycheck. So I'm not saying it's an easy needle to thread. I think it's a needle they're going to try to thread. Well,
1: and it's one Elizabeth Warren has tried to do because she says, I'm a capitalist, Unlike Mm -hmm. Bernie Sanders, who's willing to say he's at least a Democratic socialist.
0: So I imagine we'll hear more about a lot of this during the next Democratic primary debate. That'll be on Thursday. And it'll only have seven candidates on stage. But we should point out that most of them are white, with the exception of Andrew Yang, who is Asian-American, who also qualified. Who just qualified. He was the last one. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, can't let it go.
2: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Google. From Connecticut to California, from Mississippi to Minnesota, millions of American businesses are using Google tools to grow online. The Grow with Google initiative supports small businesses by providing free digital skills workshops and one-on-one coaching in all 50 states, helping businesses get online, connect with new customers, and work more productively. Learn more at google.com grow. Support also comes from Doctors Without Borders. Doctors Without Borders teams confront hard facts in conflict and crisis zones. When others look away, they step in to act. In emergencies and their aftermath, they provide essential health care, run hospitals and clinics, perform surgery, battle epidemics, carry out vaccination campaigns, and more. Information on their efforts and campaigns in over 70 countries can be found at doctorswithoutborders.org.
1: And before we get back to the show, a quick reminder, if you haven't already, please pause the podcast and head to donate.npr.org politics to support the show and your local member station. Unless you're driving or holding a baby, then you can wait. Just don't forget to do it. All right. Back to the show.
0: And we're back. And it is time to end the show like we always do with Can't Let It Go. Um, Who would like to go first, Tam? I would like to go first. Uh, So
4: this week, there was a lot of news, but Time magazine every year does a person of the year. And as we know, President Trump has a unique obsession with Time magazine (laughs) and in particular with the person of the year. And he also has this weird thing with Greta Thunberg, the teenage climate activist. And so... She, of course, is named Time Person of the Year, mm-hmm. and President Trump decides to tweet about a 16-year-old girl, and he tweets, "So ridiculous! Greta must work on her anger management problem, then go to a good old-fashioned movie with a friend!" Exclamation <laughs> point. Chill, Greta. Chill.
0: Exclamation <laughs> <laughs> point. I feel like he's trolling her, but I'm a little unclear well, on the I actual mean, like, attempt. It's not like of... he's ever
4: angry?
5: You know,
0: <laughs> his base is
4: really fired up about greta thunberg for some reason but like this also is like mad trolling of all of america because now all of a sudden you have the first family had just been outraged that someone testifying in the impeachment hearing had mentioned his son baron his minor son baron Mm. and then all of a sudden now the president whose wife has a whole thing about Be Best oh, yes. is mean tweeting at a 16-year-old girl. Right.
1: You know, Greta Thunberg had a pretty good response because she right. wound up making her profile, that. you know, saying, oh, Danielle's got it. Uh, it says, it? a teenager working on her anger management problem, currently <laughs> chilling and watching a good old-fashioned movie with a friend.
0: That's pretty yeah. clever. She pretty quickly that changed pretty her profile. Clever. Yeah, that is pretty clever. Dominica, why don't you go? Well- what
1: I found really fascinating this week was, uh, I don't know if it was all of the stuff around what happened in one of the congressional hearings or if it was the act itself, but it was Republican lawyer Steve Castor showing up to the hearing that he was testifying at, bringing his briefings. His,
2: bu- his
4: business papers, His if business you will.
1: papers, et cetera, the things that were going to help him during this hearing. Not in a briefcase like lawyers would, but in a shopping bag. Like in a fresh market recycled shopping bag. Which all of us have and have used and He was saving
4: the five cents. I have I have
1: (laughs) I will admit I've I've gone to the gym that way. You know, I couldn't find my duffel bag and use that. That's fine. Yeah. So I just found it fascinating. I mean people were, you know, tweeting all kinds of things about it. The one that I think got retweeted. A lot that I kind of liked was from J.D. Durkin where he says, quote, I assume this is a conversation between – Caster and maybe his significant other saying, hey, you're bringing your briefcase today to your nationally televised impeachment hearing, right? He's like, no, no, I'll be fine with this.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Hey, they carry a lot of stuff. And they're strong. I mean, if it can carry two gallons of milk, why not uh, all of the briefing papers for the impeachment? Maybe now this is the it bag of Republican lawyers everywhere.
1: (laughs) Ozma keeping her tongue tied she's like mm, Asma give us yeah, your fashion opinion this will be the it bag indeed
5: no comment I'm trying to put a positive spin on this
0: alright well I will go next and I want to turn the conversation to the classic holiday movie Love Actually Oh, Great. I like Love Actually I like it too I know I like it's controversial very polarized opinions and about and now it I will hold my tongue I, I have not seen it I have no opinion. how I Tam, actually, Tam earlier, yeah. I just I want to actually sort of disclose something. I was just mentioning this outside, and Tam goes, "What's that movie? Love Everything?" And I was like, <laughs> "You've never seen this, and it's not called Love it Everything." It came out before you had kids. You have no excuse. <laughs>
4: Taste? I don't know.
0: <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs>
4: in any case, oh, Love excellent.
0: Actually is a very polarizing movie yes. for those kids As who haven't seen see. it. I happen to fall into the camp that I really like it. I think it's a very, like, touching, romantic Christmas movie with lots of nice holiday scenes. And there's this scene in the movie where this guy goes up. To this I and mean, this is a little weird as I'm describing what actually happens in the movie. But this guy goes up See? to his See? best friend's wife to tell him how much he loves her and opens up the door and, like, basically puts on Christmas carol music but displays these signs, right? Did uh, oh, this ring a bell? Oh, so this is why every time I've ever seen
4: a thing where there's somebody displaying signs, I'm like, what's yeah. that?
5: SNL did it with Hillary in 2016, yes. yeah. Oh. So apparently, in the
0: UK, Uh, Boris Johnson, who uh, is the prime minister in the UK, decided that he would take this as a political ad strategy. And there is an ad of him (laughs) going up to the door to tell people... To vote for the conservative party. I was told by folks in the UK that there was actually a Labor Party version of the same ad as well. Huh. Of course, the, the conservative one did include Boris Johnson. It would be kind of like President Trump in an ad for himself with Love Action. I really can't imagine that as I'm saying this out loud.
1: It's <laughs> a weird look for Boris Johnson. Anyhow, I
0: thought it was a really interesting, possibly like compelling ad. I felt like people also felt very polarized about the ad's effectiveness as well. In any case, maybe it's the reason why Boris Johnson's party was made majorly successful in the UK elections. Osma
1: yeah. and Domenico say, go watch the movie. Danielle? I think
5: you have better things to do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, Danielle, what can't you let go of?
5: All right. The thing I can't let go of, this has everything. It has pigeons. It has cowboy hats. It has a rodeo. It has fashion reporting. It has Wait, o- wait,
4: fashion reporting It too? has
5: over-reporting by the New York Times. It has country music. I am talking about this... Incredible story that was on the New York Times website this week. It is by Christine Hauser who reported the living bejesus out of a story called "Someone Is Putting Cowboy Hats on Pigeons in Las Vegas." The story
0: is—I <laughs> just got back from Vegas. How did I not see this? I don't. Well, know. I don't know
5: how many pigeons actually I love, have. Cowboy
0: I love the hats idea on. of this.
5: I urge you all to read this because it has some of the greatest quotes in it. For example, the reporter asked the New York Times fashion critic to give a ruling on whether they were cowboy hats or top hats. They are cowboy hats, apparently. Not only that, they called up an ornithologist at Cornell and asked him, like, about the bird's welfare. And he says, I think the thing that I would emphasize is that I can't see that it is causing any great harm to the pigeons. (laughs) They look like happy pigeons to me. It is hard to know, of course, because they will not talk to us. Which, by the way, is a great quote because it makes the pigeons Sound stubborn, like that's what no, they that can't talk. It's they Pigeon
1: won't. declined to comment.
5: Uh, one final thing, though, is that some comedian on Twitter, her name is Hannah Solo, made a song about this that I have caught myself singing around the
3: oh, no. office
0: okay, all let's day. Hear it. Oh wow! Someone's putting cowboy hats on pigeons in Las
3: Vegas. Nobody seems to know why.
0: They say. But the rodeo says it just ain't so The police say they're not investigating at this time
3: Merry Christmas, pigeons (laughs)
0: Nice. <laughs> Merry Christmas, <laughs> <to the> pigeons
3: <laughs> oh.
0: It's performance All art Alright, well we are going to leave it there And that is a wrap for now Let's end the week by thanking the team that puts our show together Our executive producer is Shirley Henry Our editors are Mathoni Maturi And Eric McDaniel Our producer is Barton Girdwood Our production assistant is Chloe Weiner Thanks to Lexi Shapital, Dana Farrington Brandon Carter and Elena Burnett also, a huge thank you to Elena, because today is her last day as our intern. Aww, and we are really going to miss her. Very much. Remember, you can support all of us and our work by supporting your local NPR station. You can go right now to donate.npr.org politics. And thank you. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover the 2020 campaign. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben. I cover politics. And I'm
1: Domenico Montanaro, senior political editor and correspondent.
0: And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.